Well, good morning, Chelton Church. It is a privilege to be with you this morning. Um, and just to, in case there was any confusion, I am not your music pastor's twin brother. <laughs> Though uh, apparently we have the same barber. Um, it is a, it's a privilege to be with you, and I'm, I'm thankful to your pastor and your elders for the invitation uh, to take up uh, the sermon that continues a series uh, that you have been in, and the text was uh, just read for you. Men are afraid to have good thoughts of God. So wrote the 17th century pastor John Owen. Actually, John Owen, when he said that, was writing about Christians, people who'd already been graced with salvation. Owen said this, even Christians think it a boldness to eye God as good, gracious, tender, kind, loving. I speak of saints, he said, but for the other side, they can judge him hard, austere, severe, almost implacable and fierce, and think herein they do well. And then the old physician of souls diagnoses the source and solution of all of this. He said this, is not this soul deceit from Satan? Was it not his design from the beginning to inject such thoughts of God? I remember one of the contexts in which I had the privilege of being a pastor, uh, interviewing people for membership and admission to the Lord's table who were well into their retirement years and who, for whom it had taken decades to even become assured enough of God's love that they would feel like they could even participate in that gift that God has given to us of communion. And that was because they had been raised in a spiritual tradition that said that really you have to just keep running and you have to keep jumping and you have to keep working in order that God, you might get some sense that God actually loves you. And in a context like that, religion becomes a dry duty. It's exhausting. It's exasperating. And in fact, the pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of growth in the Christian life becomes utterly ineffective. When we think that what we have to do is perform what God has prescribed to get God to love us. Well, this morning we're going to peek into the prayer closet of one of God's own appointed spokesmen, and here's what we're going to discover as we stop into his prayer closet. God's desire and design for his church is that we would have fellowship with him and the knowledge of his love so that we would grow into maturity in his likeness. Your pastors have been walking you through the book of Ephesians, so you know the first two and a half chapters are filled with gospel grace, what God by His grace has done in His Son to save us. Now the apostle is moving from chapters on what God has done by grace to three chapters on how we are to now live by grace. This is, if you like, the pivot to practice in the book of Ephesians. And the glorious gospel reality is that Christ's apostle makes the pivot to practice by asking God to provide what He prescribes. Now, that's actually pretty significant. This is actually the second time in this 
letter that this powerful gospel preacher has actually prayed overtly in the letter. Maybe you remember as you're walking through Ephesians there in the second half of chapter 1 after he lays out that cascade of praise of all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. He bows his knee and he prays that God would give the spirit of wisdom and understanding that they'd actually apprehend everything that he's already said to them. And then he's going to ask for prayer again in chapter 6. And that chapter that's about spiritual conflict and standing firm in the spiritual conflict. If you get to chapter 6, verse 18, he says the way you stand firm, the way you put on all the armor of God is by praying. And then he's going to ask them to pray for his ministry that God would open the door for the word. Why is that significant? It's significant because Christ's authorized, spirit-led spokesman didn't just give them more information. He didn't just give them more content. Now, don't get me wrong. He gave them content, deep, rich, doctrinal content. But the human problem is not just informational, and it's not just intellectual. We need the direct intervention of God Himself. We need God acting, working on us in our situation. And so Paul turns to the living God here in this prayer as he moves, if he pivots to practice from doctrine to life, he turns to the living God and appeals to him personally to be active. And because these are the inscripturated words of Christ's apostle, here's something you can take to the bank, something you can be sure of. These are the spirit-inspired and scripturated words of Christ's spokesman, so they are a declaration of Christ's own will and desire for his church. So as we peek into the prayer closet of the Apostle Paul this morning, here's what we're going to learn. God's desire and design for His church is that we would have fellowship with Him in the knowledge of His love so that we would grow into maturity in His likeness. We're going to unpack that by looking at three aspects of this prayer. First of all, we're going to see the passion for maturity. The passion for maturity. Second, the power for maturity. And then third, we'll notice the path to maturity. The the passion for maturity, the power for maturity, and the path for maturity. First of all, notice the passion for maturity. The Lord has uh, blessed my wife Rhonda and me with now seven grandchildren. The seventh was just born about two weeks ago. And I love watching these little ones coming into the world. And if you're a parent or a grandparent, you know you look at them. And the first thing you try to figure out is who do they look like? What side of the family do they resemble? And they've all got their different, their, their different looks. And, and for, thankfully for their good, none of them look like me. But as they grow up, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing who do they look like. My granddaughters kind of look like little mini-me's of, of my daughter-in-law, and my grandsons start to look like this person. And as they grow to maturity, they're going to take on a look. They're going to start to conform to the DNA that they have. Well, that's actually the end goal of the prayer in verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's an absolutely stunning phrase which essentially means this, that you would grow to full maturity in the character of God. That's the end goal of Paul's prayer, that you would grow to full maturity in the character of God. Now, you know how important particular words are in their particular context. For example, if you're running a business and your business interests have involved you entering a legal contract, you pay attention to the words and you want to know what those words mean. 
If you get a report from your doctor, you are listening for particular, sometimes very technical words because those words can mean comfort or they can mean concern. Well, it's not an overstatement to say this, that there are no more important words to understand than the ones that God has given to us in the pages of Scripture. And these words filled with all the fullness of God give us the very goal of God for our life in Christ. So it's important that we're under, we understand that we're crystal clear on what they mean. Essentially what these words mean is this, that those in Christ would be completely conformed to the character of God. See, when the writers of Scripture use the term the fullness of God, they mean the presence and power of God in His person and character. Paul's inspired prayer is that we would be filled with the fullness of God, that God, in the power and beauty of His person and of His character, would fill our life. And this is an amazing thing if you're familiar with the Bible's story. You might remember that this is actually the purpose for which we were created by God. And it's the purpose for which we have been recreated in Christ. See, human beings were made in the image of God to refract God's glory throughout all of life. And Scripture defines our sin, you might remember, as falling short of the glory of God. We fail to display His splendor. We fail to display His goodness. But then the good news is we're told that God in His love sent His Son in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily. His Son, who is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. And a central point of the book of Ephesians is that in Christ, in God's Son, in Him, we are redeemed and we are raised and we are reconciled and we are remade to look like Him. In fact, if you just look with me for a moment, if you've got a Bible that's open, turn with me to chapter 4, verse 22 to 24. And I apologize, I'm using the ESV. I know you read the NIV, but it's pretty close. And listen to the purpose for which God, God has done what He has. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 to 24, He says this, To put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceits, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, watch this, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then just a couple of verses later, He gives us this, pivotal summary of the Christian life. It says this in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Friends, that's where you're going in the rest of the letter in Ephesians. So if Paul was making his rounds of talk, of talk show hosts and they were to ask him, what could you possibly mean by the words filled with all the fullness of God? Here's what he'd say. It means to be conformed to the character of God in Christ and through Christ. I think the gospel is marvelous beyond words. God has taken rebellious image bearers, sinful, guilty, broken, corrupted as we are, and in His image-perfect Son, He has redeemed us. He has declared us righteous, and He is renewing us to conformity to the very image against which we rebelled in the first place. And so the result is that as the church, through the church, He gets glory 
as his marvelous character is made known. So the passion for maturity. Second, would you notice that if we have that desire, if that's something we aspire to, if that's a vision that grabs our hearts, would you secondly notice the power for maturity, the passion for maturity and the power for maturity? I have, as I mentioned, my grandchildren. I have five grandsons, two granddaughters. and My oldest grandson has just, uh, just turned four, and I just got a new lawnmower. And so a couple of weeks ago, or a few weeks ago, we were out in the backyard, and my grandson, who's named after me, John, I turned to him and said, John, I want you to help me mow the lawn with my new lawnmower. He's four years old. He looks at the lawnmower, and he's game, so he grabs hold of it. But you know that lawnmower's not going anywhere with four-year-old John until Granda John gets behind him and puts his hands on the lawnmower and actually supplies the power to do what I asked him to do. Paul, in his prayer, shows us the power for maturity, the power to grow into the fullness of God, maturity and conformity to His character, comes, notice in the text, from the riches of our Father's glory, or His glorious riches, by the power of His Spirit. Verses 14 to 16 is this densely packed description that should inspire great hope as we aspire to maturity. Just look again, follow with me in your version, verses 14 to 16. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom from the whole, His whole family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, your version, His glorious riches, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Here's what Paul's doing in this prayer. Paul is praying for the church, for the family that derives its name from him, the whole family glorified in heaven. And now as we are still on earth, the family of God, the household of God, and he is praying that from the Father they would get the power from his glory to grow into exactly what he has prescribed for them. Notice the prayer. He prays that from the riches of His glory, or His glorious riches, He would supply you power to grow to maturity. If you were to read the prophet Isaiah, you would see that our Father in heaven is the Lord who has measured the, the, he's measured the oceans in the hollow of His hands. He has measured the dimensions of space by the breadth of His hand. He has held the dust of the earth in a basket and weighed out the mountains and the scales in a balance. Our Father created the stars and the planets and He brings them out one by one and He calls them all by name. And they've stayed in place over the millennia because of His power and strength. Our Father is the sovereign God that the Apostle John in the book of Revelation saw sitting on the throne in heaven in, had, who had the appearance of jasper and carnelian and whose throne was surrounded by a rainbow and, who appear, and, and appeared as an emerald. And from His throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles of thunder. And before His throne is a sea of glass like crystal and it's surrounded by saints in white and creatures and myriads of angels and multitudes of nations day and night declaring His power and glory. Our Father is the same God and 1 Timothy chapter 6 
Paul is going to tell us is the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God who dwells in inapproachable light. Our Father is glorious and dwells in glory in the perfection and radiant splendor of His own being and power. And just that little taste, that's just a little taste of the Bible's disclosure of God's glory tells us that our Father's riches are inexhaustible, incomprehensible, and utterly amazing. And so when Paul makes the pivot to practice in the Christian life, he bows his knee and he goes to the Father and he says, Father, out of your glory, give them what they need. And you realize he's not an unwilling father. He's the God and Father who has, Ephesians 1, already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's the Father that Jesus taught us far surpassing all the fallen earthly fathers that all of us had. He is the Father who delights to give good gifts to His children. But the good news doesn't end there. Because if your Bible's open, notice how it is and where it is that He dispenses the riches of His glory. It gets better. Look at the text. In power through His Spirit in our hearts. Last part of verse 16, he says this, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through your spirit in your inner being. Now, I don't know you that well, but it is possible, because it is possible for a lot of Christians, that we're not immediately dialed into, tuned into the idea of power in our Christian experience. We can be really at home when we talk about truth, and that's good. We're tuned into issues of good morals, and that's absolutely vital. But power, well, that's maybe a step or two removed, and maybe that's for the more reckless, superstitious beliefs and behaviors of other churches that don't handle the Bible so carefully. See, when it comes to the issue of power and the Holy Spirit, we can be a little bit like Tavia in Fiddler on the Roof, that classic story about the Jews in Russia, the main character Tavia comes face to face one day with well, one of the Tsar's soldiers and Tavia speaks the appropriate blessing to the Tsar's soldier. He says, God bless the Tsar and keep him. And then he mutters, he turns around and mutters, far away from me. We can be a little bit like spiritual Tavias when it comes to the Holy Spirit and His power and His life. We, we perhaps know the right things to believe, even the right thing to say, but we don't actually expect the Holy Spirit to work in our life with power. It's very clear that the apostle saw the Holy Spirit and His power as a basic factor in the Christian life. And he wasn't afraid and he wasn't ashamed to ask the Father for the Spirit's direct, dynamic impact on the very core of our person, our inner being, our heart. You see, it's the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who effectively executes all the will of God in our life. It's the Spirit who communicates the presence of Christ to our hearts. It's the Spirit who causes us to apprehend the love of God. It's the Spirit who works to transform us into the image of God. And He does it personally by His presence and with His power. My friends, the Spirit is not about freaky formulas or fanaticism. He's about impressing the knowledge of the love of God in our soul. 
And the fact that Paul prays for that to come from the riches of the Father's glory with power tells us it's not a little thing. And it's not a natural thing. What we need to mature in the character of God is nothing less than the power of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. So could I pause to ask you, when you aspire to the goal of growth in your life or the life of your loved ones, do you ask God for the power of the Spirit in your life, in the life of your loved ones, in the life of your church? See, we don't know the love of God by philosophizing about it or romanticizing about it or telling sentimental stories about it or merely, merely just by teaching about it. But as the Holy Spirit, whom every believer in Christ has, as the Holy Spirit powerfully persuades us of it. That brings me to my third point. We've seen the passion for maturity. We've seen the power for maturity. And now... Would you notice with me the path to maturity? How is it? How does the Spirit powerfully bring the riches of the Father's glory into our heart? How does this work? Here's the answer. He communicates the presence of Christ for fellowship with Christ in the assurance of His love. He communicates the presence of Christ for fellowship with Christ in the assurance of His love. That's the path to maturity. Fellowship with Christ in the knowledge of His love. That's what's expressed through verses 17 to 19. Just listen to it again. He prays for all of this so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints or all His holy people what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now maybe it strikes us as a little strange that he's praying for Christians that Christ might dwell in their hearts. After all, isn't that fairly fundamental to being a Christian in the first place that Christ dwells in your heart? And the answer is Yes. For example, Colossians 1.27, he describes the very mystery of the gospel as Christ in you, the hope of glory. Galatians 2.20, he states that the basic to the Christian life is the reality is, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. To be a Christian is to have Christ by the Spirit dwelling in you. So why is he praying that Christ may dwell in these believers? Let me see if this helps. Quite a few years ago, a relative moved into our home for about a year. And before that, they'd visited with us. They'd stayed with us numerous times. But now, when they came into our home, they were home. And there was a marked difference in their familiarity with our place. They felt free to leave their stuff on the kitchen counters. Uh, they'd lie in front of the fire with their, their stocking feet up. They stored their strange food in the fridge freely and without asking. Because they were at home. All the awkwardness, all the formality had disappeared. They were familiar with our place as their place. They were now dwelling with us. That's the image projected by the word that Paul chose to translate as dwell 
here. See, there are a couple of words that Christ spokesman could have chose. And he chose one that meant being familiar with your own home. So the point is not that Christ wants to come into the hearts of Christians. He's already there. That happened at their conversion. But that he wants to have familiar friendship and fellowship with those in whom he's already taken up residence. The point is Christ filling the heart with his presence for fellowship in loving fellowship. As it were, Christ sitting at the table in intimate communion where your heart is his home. So here's the result of the Father dispensing the riches of His glory and the power of the Spirit in your heart. Friendly fellowship with Christ. I think that should cause us to delight in the kindness and the loveliness of Christ toward us. See, Christ doesn't stand off at a distance as an abstract or a merely historical figure. Growing in Christ is not like reading a good biography and then trying to pattern your life after the main character. Christ actually dwells in us in friendship, in fellowship, and He would fill us with Himself. And that happens when the Father dispenses His power through the Spirit to our hearts. This is quite remarkable. So you realize what's going on? We're having communion, fellowship, and friendship with the triune God, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. The whole Godhead is involved in our salvation. We are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And, and the whole Godhead is involved in our growth, in the maturity, in the character of God. The whole Godhead, by grace, relates to us in favor and friendship and in fellowship. And you notice the outcome of that fellowship at the end of verse 17 through verse 19 that we would know His love. Another one of those Puritan pastors, Thomas Goodwin, pictured it this way. Here's his story. Imagine a man and his little child, his son, walking down the road, and they're walking hand in hand, and the child knows that he's the child of his father, and he knows his father loves him. And he rejoices in it, and he's happy in it. There's no uncertainty about it at all. But suddenly, the father, moved by some some impulse, takes hold of that child, picks him up, cuddles him in his arms, kisses him, embraces him, showers love upon him, and then puts him down again, and they go walking away together. The point being, the child knew before that his father loved him, but at that moment, he knows that his father loves him. Our theological forefathers used to call that experimental knowledge, the deep knowledge subjective apprehension of that which we know objectively to be true. When what we know up here gets down here. The goal of communion with Christ is that we would know His love. That our hearts would taste and be settled and assured and delighted in His affection towards us. That He loves us. not the way most of us have understood how you motivate maturity, is it? Many of us were taught and treated as though the way you motivate holiness is to leave people in doubt of the love of God towards them. That's not the way Christ and the apostles, Christ's apostles approached it. Certainly not here. Get the gospel logic. 
God would have us know the immense, incomprehensible love of Christ so that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. I just have time to conclude by asking the how question. How do we enjoy this Father-dispensed, Spirit-powered fellowship with Christ in love? Well, in His kindness, God has made it profoundly simple. Just look at the middle of verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. We enjoy fellowship with Christ by faith. Christ mediates His presence, the presence of the triune God, an assurance of love in our hearts through faith. We experience fellowship with Christ in His love by believing what God has said about Christ, by believing what God has said Christ accomplished, by believing what God has said who God has said Christ is, by believing what God has promised to us in Christ. We experience, we enjoy this fellowship with Christ in love by embracing Him, by trusting Him, by resting in Him from the heart as He is revealed to us in the Scriptures. Here's another way of putting it. We enjoy this communion with Christ in love by believing the Gospel. Communion with God in love is experienced and enjoyed by resting our hearts and rejoicing in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God's desire and design for His church is that we would have fellowship with Him in the knowledge of His love so that we would grow to maturity in His likeness. That's the pivot to practice. Let's pray. Our glorious Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your Son and in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that for your people, those who sit in the sound of the preaching of your word this day, we pray that by your power, through your Spirit, in the name of your Son, you would seal your love to our hearts and shed it abroad in our hearts that knowing the love of God knowing that you first loved us we might love you and that we might walk in conformity to your character as you've revealed it in your word and Lord we pray that you would do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine according to the power that is at work within us, your power that's at work within us, so that Christ might get glory in the church, both now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.